Anyway, it's good to see you this morning. We're so glad you came to Trinity. My phone is down here doing the live recording, so everybody's online. Hello. We're glad you joined us. My, my wife gave me her watch, so I wouldn't be long-winded today. Uh, you all can thank her later for that. It's good to see you this morning. We trust that you've had a good week. It's a pleasure to see your face. Hopefully you've seen some of the progress that's happening on our building. We're waiting on a couple pieces of glass to come. And as soon as that comes, then the whole front's going to start going back together. Praise the Lord. And then the projector, hopefully, will get hooked up. But we have a few more weeks of this. So thank you for being patient with us and for hanging in. So we always like to share this. If you're a guest with us, we, have, uh, we would like for you to text us your number and just simply put your name down in the bottom of the line, who you are. Here's the number, 540-274-2341. And just put guest, and then it'll prompt you to fill out something to give us your name. We won't harass you. We don't send you all kinds of messages and ask, try to sell you anything. It just gives us a record of who you are. We pray for you. We add you to our list. We pray for your name. And so if you're online, you can do that too. We have people from Texas that watch us online. We have people from near the Ohio-West Virginia line that watch us online. Believe it or not, they actually give and support our church. One person that we just had no clue was coming knew that we were doing a building project, and all of a sudden a check comes in the mail for $500. He wants to help us with our foyer, and he likes our online presence, enjoys our teaching ministry. We've had other people from around the United States and even people from around the world that watch us. So thank you for uh, hanging in there for the next few months until we get our really good camera system back up. But we're thankful for your presence this morning. We're in a study on the Psalms, and I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 73. And I want to answer a question this morning that we all ask at one time or another. If you did not get an outline, there's some in the back beside the bulletin. You have to look for them. But if you need one, slip your hand up. Brian might get some people to hand them out. But it's got a little way to know when I'm finished, okay? There's fill in the blank. I I never do these until you can't see the screen or the projector, and then this kind of helps you follow along. Why do the wicked prosper? Now let me ask you a question. How long has the problem of evil been around? Well, obviously it's been around since the Garden of Eden. But you and I... Those of us who know Jesus as our personal Savior, we've realized that there was a sin debt that we owed to God. We realized that His holiness was not our holiness. And that violation, that sin nature that we have, separates us from God's presence. But because God loved us, He sent God in the flesh to come and die a death that you and I deserve so that He could give us by His full grace something we can never earn, we can never pay for, we can never work for. He gives us eternal life if we believe in Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. And God takes our sin, and in return for taking our sin, He gives us something we could never earn, and that is His righteousness. So that when you stand before God in Jesus Christ, you are as righteous as Jesus. And every believer who understands that in their heart says, Thank you, Lord, because we know we're not that righteous on our own. But He is the gift of righteousness to us that allows us to enter God's presence. That is the gospel, by the way, folks. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus gave us that gift. 
Now, after we trust Christ as Savior, we have believed on Him for eternal life. And by the way, I just shared a whole lot there. But after we do that, is life all peaches and roses? Uh, Does that mean that after we trust Jesus as our Savior, we will never lack money? Does that mean we'll never struggle to pay our bills or we'll never lose our job? Does that mean that we will never be put under a tyrannical boss at work or a crazy neighbor who lives beside us? Does that mean that we will never be under the influence of leaders, whether they be government officials or other people who are in places of power, who will not suppress and oppress you? And if that in fact happens, does that mean that God is no longer good? If God allows suffering in the world, if God allows you to get cancer, if God allows someone in your life to get cancer and they die, does that mean God is not good? Now there are people who struggle to answer this question, and this is an age-old question that the psalmist addresses this morning. So I turn your attention to Psalm chapter 73. I hope you turn there in your Bible. I did put it on the screen, but it's not as effective as looking at it on text and paper. I am an old-fashioned guy. Psalm 73 is categorized as a wisdom psalm. You see it here. The psalm's broken down in different types. You have praise psalms, trust psalms, thanksgiving psalms, lament songs, royal songs that talk about Jesus and the reign of God. And then you have these wisdom psalms. Now, I know you can't see all those, but Psalm 73 is categorized as a wisdom psalm. And there is a reason for that. It's because this psalm actually gives us God's perspective on life when evil seems to win. And so this psalmist is going to instruct believers on how to understand our own actions and our own attitudes when we see those who are opposed to God and those who seem to prosper when they could care less about the God of heaven. It also informs us of how we are to respond when we see the evil prosper and what appears to be the righteous suffer. How do you deal with that? Now, one of the worst ways that we could ever view God, I've got to get this on the table up front, is viewing God's nature by what you and I see. You have to hear me. We live in a sin-cursed, fallen earth. In other words, people are evil. Our natures are evil. Our, our desires are evil. And let me tell you something, folks. We have that same propensity living inside of us. We are selfish. We are self-centered. We're self-seeking. We desire only what pleases us. Accept the grace of God break in and help us see that and then be others-centered. So people that don't have Jesus for eternal life are by nature self-serving, self-seeking, self-centered. It's all about them. Karen and I have been enjoying watching a program on the History Channel that we DVR'd called The Men Who Made America. The Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers. I mean, all of these people who came in and made the railroads, the coal industry, the oil industry, and how cutthroat the business sector really was. Just last night, we learned where unions came from and how... uh, 
It was the Carnegie guy hired someone else to come in who was a brutal man to take the steel mills, lower their pay, increase their work days to 12 hours a day, six days a week, cut their pay and make them produce more steel for the sole purpose of himself having more money than John D. Rockefeller. That created a war. And it was amazing. The selfishness, the depravity of man, it's everywhere. So how do people respond to that? What do we do? Well, Psalm 73 tells us, and this is the full intent of this psalm, is to teach us the true end of the wicked and the blessing of the presence of God in the life of the righteous. Now, we have to choose to practice this, but this is true. I'm going to read verse 1, make one comment, and then get right into it. Psalm 73, 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. One man wrote this phrase. He said, the phrase pure in heart is more significant than it may seem. For the psalm will show the relative unimportance of circumstances in comparison with attitudes. Now, catch that. It's... It's not nearly as important what you see as it is what is going on in your heart because of what you see. And this is how, what this psalm is going to expose is our own heart and how we respond when we see things that we don't agree with. It's going to tell us something about us. So he goes on to say, in comparison with attitudes which may may be either soured by self-interest or set free by love. So this whole issue is about whether or not we're willing to live a life of faith. Now here's the psalmist. His name is Asaph, and he's going to write this psalm about what he sees. And I'm, I'm going to read it off the screen, but I would rather read it out of my Bible. But here go 12 verses on the problem. The outline is, here is the problem. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Why is it, he says, that the drunk and the evil and the mean man never get sick? Why is it that they are not the ones who get the cancer? They are not the ones who have the struggles and problems in life. I'm not the drugger. I'm not the drinker. How come I get the cancer and they don't? And this is this man's struggle. Notice what he goes on to say. Therefore, because they are chunky and heavy and fat and fed and full, their pride is their necklace. This is a symbolic type language of saying they're so arrogant and proud they wear it like jewelry. I mean, they strut around nothing but pride and arrogance. And and in return, they clothe themselves with violence. It's almost like it empowers them since they're healthy and wicked, that they want to be more mean and more vicious. Notice what he says in verse 7. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. 
The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They think evil, they do evil. When you think that they've done enough evil, they know some more evil to do. They scoff and they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. In other words, it seems like they are the ones who rule. They're the ones in charge. Verse 10, therefore, and this is a problematic verse in Hebrew, but I'm going to read it to you from this translation. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Let me explain this verse. He's saying, because these these violent people, these arrogant people, these wicked people prosper because they have plenty to eat and plenty of money and they're proud and arrogant and they get away with violence. Other people see them and they want to be like them and they influence them. And in return, just like someone who's drinking up everything that someone pours out, that is what it seems like other people are doing. Now, let me pause right here and get practical. Hollywood and other areas that influence our culture and our life have destroyed our society. The average person who thinks that they're going to be a professional ball player or movie star or or famous singer is about as... uh, about as possible as somebody getting struck by lightning. It's very rare. Yet, when we see people who are in the limelight and the spotlight and have all the money, what is it that we desire to do? If I could just be like that person. And some of them promote violence and other issues of the day that are violent. And it causes us to want to be just like them. And as a result, their influence and their prosperity causes us to be attracted to them. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? I mean, I'm living my life like this. I've cursed God. I've lived my own way. I've done people wrong. I've made some business deals and I have come out smelling like a rose. And yeah, I did them wrong and I love it. That's kind of what those guys were saying last night. The best businessman is the dirtiest businessman because business is business, they say. It's all about the money. How can God know? Does the Most High even have knowledge? Now listen what they're saying about God. Because I've lived wicked, God hasn't done anything. Does He even know? Is He even there? I mean, if He is... He hasn't done anything. There's actually a story of a man who was on a street and there was a famous preacher who was standing there preaching and the scoffer looked at the preacher and he said, you fool, preaching about this God that you can't see. He stepped back and he said, God, if you're up in heaven, then strike me. And the preacher just stood there and the man stepped back again and said, I said, God, if you're up in heaven, strike me if you're real. And the preacher was standing there watching and the man crawled up on the stage and said, see there, folks, you're listening to a God who doesn't even exist. Now, can you imagine the arrogance of somebody like that? 
the street preacher wisely was able to comment back and say the reason we know God exists is that he didn't strike you. Because if he was a man, he would have. Does the Most High have knowledge? Now notice what he says. This is what the wicked are like. You see that dash? That's an indication in the Hebrew he wants to keep going and going and going. But he summarizes it and says, they're always carefree and they always increase in wealth. Now this bothered him. How can he be struggling as a believer and somebody else that's wicked be prospering? God, I thought you were going to do something about this. So that was his greatest problem. But now it's going to come a turning point. What does he do now? And by the way, this is the turning point. If you have your Bible, can I point this out to you? Starting in verse 2, let me, let me read these quickly. But as for me, my feet, my steps, I was envious. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. My, my, I, I, they, I, my, my. What, what's his problem here? Now, let's go down. Verse 13, I kept my heart, my hands, I had been. And then you get all of a sudden down to verse 17. And then the first mention of God is finally made. And then God's mentioned six, eight more times by personal name and then referred to in a pronoun, you, many times. What's the problem going on here? We call this myopia. In other words, the only person we can see is ourself. We can't see God. And this is the issue. So notice the, the turning point here in this psalm. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. I'm living this Christian life and I'm trying to do what God tells me to do. I'm not prospering. I'm getting persecuted. Verse 14, all day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak the way they did, then I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Notice this, folks. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. When I, when I quit being God and looking at everything and telling God what I thought He should have done and how He should have acted, and when I actually went into the sanctuary and heard the law of Moses read, and I heard how God will deal with the wicked, then I understood this is why it happens this way. This was the turning point. And then the solution came in verses 18 through 28. Notice what he observed. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakens, so when you, when you arise, let me read it this way, when you choose to arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I, I was as clueless as a dog about what was going on. Yet I am always with you. 
You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. God, this is what you're going to do for me. And then he gives this song of praise. Who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and He is my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all of your deeds. What was the psalmist's greatest problem? His greatest problem was reconciling evil with what he perceived as good and what should be happening. And he also struggled with the timing. Now there are four practical lessons this psalm teaches us about life, and I could have added ten more and changed a few, but here's the four that I printed and we'll stick with these four. And here it is, number one. The current prosperity of the wicked is not the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. You and I have not seen the last page. The psalmist here was going off of his space and time and what he saw unveiled and lived out in life and he did not see an immediate action from God and he thought, therefore, the wicked are getting away with it. Now, folks, I want to help you this morning, okay? I, I want to help you here. And if you're taking notes, you can write down two little categories, one with an upper slash and one with a lower slash. So it's forked. The upper is going to be for the wrongs by a believer, okay? Let's say you're living your Christian life and even a professed believer does you wrong. There is a time that God has set aside in His plan for the ages called the judgment seat of Christ. Three central passages are for the judgment seat. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, you can turn to Romans chapter 14. I'll just leave those two. Romans 14.10. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In those three passages, those are the central passages for the, what's called the Bema or the judgment seat. This is a future time in which believers in Jesus Christ will be taken up before Him and disputes will be settled and rewards will either be given or denied based upon our motives and our faithfulness in our life. So if you have been wronged by even a believer, one day, according to God's holy word, they will stand before Jesus to receive what is done in the body, whether it is good or whether it's worthless. And this Bema seat of Jesus uh, that, that Paul talks about, this Bema seat of Christ, was a place where people came to have their disputes settled. In other words, if two people couldn't agree on an issue and somebody had done somebody wrong, they would go before the Bema seat and there would be a judge there who would determine what had to happen. It was kind of like a court day. The Bema was also used as another purpose, and that was when they held the Olympic Games, people would be awarded or rewarded for their 
activities and their placement. And so it had a dual purpose, and Paul uses it that way. So what is the admonition? The admonition is, is if we as a believer have done any wrong to another believer or another person, as a believer, I am warning you as your pastor, you better make it right here on earth. If you've defrauded them from money, if you've done them wrong, if you've stuck it to them, you better humble yourself and go to them and apologize and ask for forgiveness and reconcile your differences because they will not be shoved under the rug. I can remember a wife sharing with someone about her husband who had run off with a younger woman, put her in a financial crisis and left her with the kids. And this poor woman was struggling while her husband was out living on a vacation house. And both were professed believers. I mean, he just really got into some major sin in his life. And she said, how can God let this happen? I'm working two jobs and have all these kids. And the wise counsel of the pastor told her, my dear lady, don't you think for one minute that God's letting him get by with that for one second? God will not let the two of you enter eternity without that being reconciled. That man will answer as a believer for the wrongs that he did. And if he doesn't make them right in this life, he will make them right at the judgment seat of Christ before they enter eternity. Now, by the way, that is part of the job of a pastor is to prepare his people, Christians, for this event. We must all appear for the ju- before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we've done in our bodies, whether good, the ESV says, or bad. The word can be translated worthless. So as believers, right will be made. Now what about unbelievers? Unbelievers have another judgment, and it's called the great white throne judgment. It's found in Revelation chapter 20. Jesus refers to this in John chapter 5. But it is a place where all unsaved people who die, all unsaved from the Garden of Eden, Cain being the first that we know of, all the way to the end of the millennial kingdom, they will all stand before God in a body. And Revelation 20 says they will be judged according to their works. Whatever they've done in their body, if it's much evil, they will receive much more judgment. The greater the evil, the greater the judgment. The greater the light that they had to respond to God. And the more they rejected that, the greater and the more severe the punishment. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. God has established in His system a time and a place to take care of wickedness and wicked deeds. He will take care of it. Now, catch me carefully. When the believer can fully, by faith, trust that God will do what He says He's going to do. Are you listening? This is what changes our life. This is what changes our life. Because we realize we are probably not going to see true justice in our lifetime. Now most of the time that eats us alive. But do you know that God loves to be trusted when all odds and doubts are against Him? I mean, that is actually how God gets the most glory out of your life is when He puts you in a situation to where you have no other choice 
but to trust Him fully or deny Him. And when you choose to trust Him, God gets so much glory from your life. And He will reward you for that. He will reward you as a believer for that. The second lesson that we learn is just what I was saying. We have to live by faith and not by sight. The worst thing you could ever do is judge God based upon what you see. God's character is not to be judged based upon the evil that you and I see in the world today. Uh, For example, why why do storms and tornadoes and hurricanes and all of these things happen? Why do floods happen? Now, a lot of people will say, well, it's because of the atmospheric climate and so forth. I would encourage you to read Psalm 104, and I know he wasn't a scientist, and I know he wasn't into climate change like we are today, but you know, heat waves like we're going to be 90-some degrees today, this is not a result of climate change. This is a result of the weather. It's called summer, and the sun is closer to the earth, and it usually gets hot in the summer, and sometimes we have really hot days. And then in the winter, depending on the cycle and the way God decides to have it move, it can either get cold or you can have a milder winter. Now that's just the way it happens, folks. And if you don't believe me, go back a hundred years when they started recording weather and look, it's no different now than it was. Now, they didn't have all these meters to read these things and so forth, but the believer understands this one thing, that we are not going to destroy the earth because we are not controlling it. God says in His Word, no matter what happens right now, there is at least 1,007 years that will happen on this earth without anybody getting involved in any kind of climate change. Now, some people may call me a fool. They'll say, are you a scientist? Are you a PhD in climatology? No. But I know enough about God's Word to know that He said He has a plan for a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth and there will be a seven-year tribulation period and I will guarantee you that's going to happen. And if you want to know somebody's going to change the climate, you should read about the tribulation period. God is going to have some climate change. He is going to heat it up to where man can't even stand to live on the earth. But you and I have to choose to live by faith and not by sight. And this is exactly what the New Testament tells us about. When we see evil, we have to understand that God will deal with it in His time. You know, so many people today, and even believers, and it, you know, I understand the irritation you and I have. We live in a culture and in a climate where it seems like politicians and all these people in higher places are getting by with absolute murder and thievery. And boy, this makes some people boil because they're not brought to justice right now. I want you to know that not one person is getting by with one thing. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro and God sees all the wickedness of man. God does not sleep, nor does He slumber. He knows the ways of man. God will hold people accountable. We have to live by faith. But if God allows evil to touch our life, we have to trust Him that He allows that and He's going to turn it for good. This is called living by faith and not by sight. Here's the third lesson we learn, and I couldn't wait to get on this one. 
Weekly gatherings as believers is very important. Are you hearing me for a moment? This man was so confused in his life until he came into a place that preached the Word of God. He said, my feet had almost stumbled, my feet had almost slipped until I entered the sanctuary of God and I heard God's Word. Not some man's opinion, not his preaching outline. I heard the Word of God. And that changed my life. Weekly gatherings, hearing God's Word, reading God's Word for yourself is so critical. Listen to me, you need to be reading God's Word. If you can't do it every day, you should do it as often as you can. And I struggle to believe that we can't read it every day. Because you do what you want to do. You do what you want to do. I do what I want to do. I schedule what I think is important the same way that you do. We do what we want to do. If church is a priority to us, let me tell you what we do on Sunday morning. We mark our calendar off. And we say, thou shalt not touch this. Because weekly gathering and worship is important. And we will be there. Because we want to hear God's Word and we want to see God's people. My wife did a little supper club this past week for all you ladies. I'm going to tell her illustration because it was so good. I was like, I should have let you preach this morning. No, she wouldn't do it and I wouldn't let her. But anyway, here was her illustration. She had a mystery dinner and she, she cooked meat and chicken and brought it on the table. And everyone who read her email and was in, that responded came they would, she would assign them a side dish. One would bring cheese. One would bring onions. One would bring sour cream. One would bring this little side. And if you were by yourself saying, why am I bringing a tomato? They, they had no clue why. Until everybody got in that meeting and then they were having this themed dinner and it was basically a taco dinner. And what she was waiting on, I guess she told this, she was waiting on somebody not to bring an ingredient so that she could say, now, you may have thought that your sour cream was not important, but have you ever tried to eat a taco without sour cream? <laughs> and you may have thought that lettuce was not important or, or sauce or dressing or all these things that give these little spices to it or these wonderful flavors, you may have thought that wasn't important until it was missing. And then she said this, the meat and the chicken, she actually said this, that, that's John and Brian. I guess you're the chicken, Brian. I, I don't know. <laughs> we, we are the meat and the chicken. It's here. It's the, it's the course. And, and we can live off meat and chicken. But I'll tell you what, when you have some sides to go with it, and you can add some flavor and spice to it, boy, it sure does change the way it tastes. And this is the truth of a local church. We can feed you God's Word. We can share this with you. But I'm going to tell you something. That's our limit. Because it takes other people to come in and add to the plate. And when we do that and we gather, we encourage one another, we share with one another, we look around and see one another, and you know what happens? We bless each other. And we encourage one another. Will Yeager yesterday gets on Faith Life and mentions... How many of y'all saw that? 
One, two, three people. Four. Okay, hopefully more solid than that. He checked on someone in our church. It's Ray and Marge Meese. They're not feeling well. And he said, reach out to them and let them know you're thinking of them. Here's Ray and Marge moved down from Ohio. Little family, but not a lot. Looking for a church home and a family and so forth. Ray almost dies because of a health issue. Wonderful man. But does their church family care about them? Will they reach out to them and let them know they're thinking about them and praying for them? Will they ask them if they need anything like a meal? And see, that's, that's where you all come in. Brian and I are expected to do this, but when this flavor comes in and people do it unprompted, let me tell you something, that is what makes a church a caring church. And this is why it's important to gather with one another and care for one another. And then the fourth lesson that we learn is what the psalmist learned. And that is this, the presence of God now and through eternity is more important than the temporary pleasures of this life. If I were going to preach this and I could only pick out a couple of verses, I'd probably preach verse 17 would be my thrust. But I saw this one, verse 23 and 24, if I were preaching and I would have had three G's. Look at this. Nevertheless, I am continually continually with you. You hold my right hand, gripped by God. There's the first G. God grips us. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. What is God doing? He's getting us by the hand. Y'all got the picture here? Mom, dad grabbing their kid, taking them over to somewhere to show them and teach them a lesson. God, you, you grip me by the arm and now you pull me over with your counsel and afterward you receive me up to glory. Here's life, folks. Here's life. Gripped, guided, and glorified. And the psalmist says, here is my life with you as my presence, God. If I will listen to you and I'm not like a stubborn animal, and if I'll actually turn to your word and seek wisdom from you, you will grab me by the right hand. You will take me down the path that I need to go. And you will keep walking with me and walking with me and all the way until the time that you come and get me and you take me to be fully in your presence. And God, thank you for doing that because now... Who else do I have in heaven but you? He says. Who else? My flesh and my heart, they may fail. Can I change that? They will fail. Your flesh and your heart will fail. But, he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The difference between the momentary prosperity of the wicked and the continual eternal presence of God is what totally changed Asaph's heart. So how do you experience that today? Well, we always say that we have to have eternal life. And the way that we receive eternal life is through the free gift of Jesus Christ. And we have to believe on His death, burial, and resurrection as a full payment for our sin. And if we're willing to do that and we're willing to accept that, 
God promises in His Word, whoever believes on Him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. God gives that as a free gift to us, but we have to believe in it. The second thing that we have to do after we have eternal life is we have to give God our hand. How many times have we as parents told our children when we went to walk across a road, give me your hand? And what did they say to us? <clears throat> I'll do it myself. I don't know how many times we saw that. And we are standing there getting ready to walk across a major busy highway with crazy people texting while driving, not paying attention on their phone. And we understand there's danger in this world and there are certain precautions that we have to do. And we as a parent say, you're going to have to trust me. I know that you need to let me grab you by the hand and tell you when we're going to walk across this road or you'll get run over. Now what if we as a child go... I don't want to hear from you. I, I'll do it myself. And listen, this is what we do to God. God tries to get us plugged into a church. He tries to get us plugged into people in our life that will speak truth to us. And we keep pulling our hand back. God says, you need to read my word. Really read my word. Like I'm talking to you. And we say, no God, I'll just have it my way. I'll just turn on Spotify and listen to some more country music. And I'll learn life from that. And I'm not against country music. I like some of it. Very little. <laughs> but can I tell you something? If your life is guided by most country music, you will be the next country music song. <laughs> I said if it's guided by it. Now there's a couple of really good ones like Where the Green Grass Grows. I mean, I could, I could share a few really great songs. My point is this. God tries to grab us by the hand and give us His perspective on how we should live in life. We have an option. Either we let Him grab our arm and we do what He says, whether we understand it or not, whether we like it or not, and we allow God to have His way. Or we walk across the road on our own. Now what are we going to do? Let God guide us and guard us and walk with us through life. Well, if we do that, we have to listen to His Word and His counsel. Or are we going to pull our hand back and say, no, I'll do it my way. Well, the end result will determine how we are. Father, thank You so much for Jesus. Thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank You for the challenge and the truth that is in it. I pray that you'll guard our hearts. If anyone is here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, Father, we pray you would open their heart to believe on Jesus, to receive eternal life. We ask your blessings on them. We pray that you would guide them. And for those here, Father, that struggle, maybe we struggle with life and trouble and problems, help us to be not stubborn, but willing to receive your counsel May we do what you tell us that we should do, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't feel like it. Help us to keep walking with you, knowing that you're guiding our steps and our life and taking us down the path that you want us to travel. So we ask for your blessings, ask for your guidance and your mercy, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>